Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We really do believe that it is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces between bone and marrow. So God, I just pray in this moment that as we have come to behold you, Jesus, as I come in weakness from a week of sickness, God, as we come in different places and different ways, would you open our hearts, would you open our eyes, would you open our ears to be able to hear your word, hear it afresh. God, would it do something in our hearts that maybe we weren't quite expecting it to do? Would it do something in us that would transform us and change us, not only individually, but as a family? Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Jesus, we worship and love and adore you. Speak to us now, we pray. It's in your name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. It's good to see your faces. Uh, Either you uh, had a really not exciting morning or night last night, or you just got some good sleep and you you made it, or you, so I'm thankful that you're here. Thank you for being here. Uh, Today marks the beginning of a new series that we're starting, five-week series called Hungry for God. This series is uh, leading us up to a season of fasting and prayer as a community, starting uh, January 30th, running through February. And the joy of this for us this year, typically we fast and pray on Jan- in January, but this year we're doing it in February because other churches in the city are actually joining us in this as well. It's amazing to think about that thousands of believers are going to be uh, considering fasting and praying and cultivating a hunger for God, asking for renewal and revival in the city of Houston. And so over these next five weeks, starting today, we're trying to cultivate grounds for that communal fast that we're going to be starting. And so we are doing that in Jonah 3. And as I was studying this week and I was thinking about, honestly, just the state of my heart as I was encountering Jonah, I realized that I tend to live my life on a pendulum. Do you know what I mean by a pendulum? Like, you know, like the little desk gadgets that kind of, it just goes side to side, back and forth, back and forth. I've realized that I tend to live my life this way. I don't know if you do either. But here's kind of where my back and forth goes. The back and forth of my life goes to either starved, dead moralism or to gluttonous hedonism. Starved, dead moralism, meaning I have to earn my place in life, my lot, my contentment, my joy, even my relationship with God, I have to earn that by doing everything just right and even adding on more than just that. Or, because that's too hard, I swing over to gluttonous hedonism, meaning how can I just enjoy life? Like this is too hard, too difficult. How do I just enjoy it? Like what, what tasty uh, flavor from crumble came out this week? <laughs> How can I order that? What do I need to do to just forget about the hard things that's happening in this moment? This is the pendulum that I find myself on. I don't know if you find yourself on this pendulum at all. Even if it feels minute, maybe you're finding yourself. Jonah 3, what it's doing for us is we're thinking about what it means to be hungry for God, cultivating a hunger for God. Jonah 3 actually gives us a path out of that. The path out of it is a front row seat to God's mercy. The path out of this pendulum, 
or falling off of the path in either trench of starved dead moralism or gluttonous hedonism, the only path out is to, is to have the front row seat to God's mercy that leads all of us to repentance. And so for us to understand this, for us to bring into focus what it is that we might be seeing from this front row seat of God's mercy, Jonah 3 is going to ask us some questions that we need to answer. These questions are simple. What is God's mercy? How do we respond to his mercy? Why should we want to respond to his mercy? And what happens if we don't respond to his mercy? So first, what is God's mercy? Look back here with me in Jonah chapter 3 as we're trying to bring into focus, what does it mean to have a front row seat to God's mercy as a path out of of this pendulum? Jonah 3 verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What is God's mercy? Well, the clues that we can kind of see here is, key in this, in this word right here, the second time. If you're familiar with Jonah's story, you know that Jonah, in Jonah chapter 1, was given a call by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a part of, an Assyrian, is a part of the Assyrian empire, known to be brutal and cruel. Their wicked, evil deeds, this terrorist state of their day, has come up to the Lord, and the Lord's saying, Jonah, you're my prophet, go deal with this. The word of the Lord, I want to deal with their sin and their brokenness and their wickedness and their evil. Go. But he's a wayward prophet. He goes to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh. Jonah 2 sees the consequence of that. He's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a fish. And then we get to Jonah 3. And we see that the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he said, arise, go to Nineveh. So what is God's mercy Let's look at the history of Jonah. We have a wayward prophet who hates the people God has told him to go to. And then we have the history of Nineveh, cruel, brutal people. One of the most violent people in empires of their day. One ruler was known, sorry for the graphicness, but just to understand it, one ruler was known for tearing off the lips and hands of their enemies. Another was known of flaying their victims alive and piling up their bones as, as if like, look at what I've done. Look at the power I've amassed. What is God's mercy? Looking at the history of Jonah and Nineveh, his mercy is not giving them what they deserve. Did you see it? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time, Jonah, to go to Nineveh. God is not treating this wayward prophet the way that he should be treated the way that he deserves. God is not treating Nineveh the way that they deserve. Instead of being eaten by this big fish and left to die in chapter two, deliverance comes and he gets to go obey God all over again. Instead of being destroyed by, for all of their atrocities, God is trying to mercifully treat them in a different way by giving them a word from him saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So what is God's mercy? God's mercy Is not getting what you deserve? Is Jonah not getting what he deserves? Is Nineveh not getting what they deserve? But here's something that's really crucial that I think sometimes we miss about God's mercy. God's mercy is inherently and intimately linked to God's judgment. God's mercy is not necessary for Nineveh if there was not some aspect of his law broken. If there weren't some atrocities and brutality that's happening, 
even baked into the definition, mercy is not getting what you deserve. There's a judgment that's been made. Something has been wronged. Some kind of moral standard has been brought less than. With understanding mercy, mercy is not what we might feel is live and let live. Mercy is a two-sided coin with judgment and mercy on both sides. And here's the, here's the, here's the part that we have to understand, the, the tension that we have to recognize, even as I say this. Let's face it, we have a morality problem. We have a morality part problem for those in the church, for those not in the church. There's a morality problem. And because of this morality problem, we may have unintentionally inoculated the judgment of God with faux mercy. Here's what I mean by this. Philosopher David uh, S. Oderberg, he's from Australia, he kind of helps us see attention, although I disagree with some of his conclusions about moral philosophy and the practical ways to go about this, but he helps us see attention here that's important. He says this, there's a tension that are between the reasonable desire not to be judgmental of other people's behavior or character and the moral necessity of making negative judgments in some cases. Essentially what he's saying is, don't you feel the tension? Don't you feel the inoculation of mercy and judgment? Even for us, the people of God, how we view God and his mercy, we inoculate his judgment saying that that's mercy, saying, oh, I don't think I'm supposed to, I don't think God, if he's good and loving, would actually say that this is bad. I don't think he can, but man, that feels really bad. There's some moral necessity there that's, that's telling us like that, that can't be good. Something has to be done. He goes on to say further, he says, on one hand, we spend much of our time far more than we would imagine morally judging the character and behavior of others. On the other, we are also generally loath to make moral judgments about other people. Here it's important to note, friends, what, what he's saying is we disguise the lack of moral judgments as mercy. We inocul- inoculate God's mercy and then his judgment by saying, well, to be merciful, he would have no judgment. And it's not possible. It's not possible. If we look at Jonah 3, if we look at the very character of God, even in the proclamation of Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be thrown overthrown. The word here, yet, means, hey, there's a chance that this may not happen, but listen, your wickedness, your sin, your brokenness, it has come up to me, and it must be dealt with. Yet, there's a path out. Although I disagree with this philosopher, I think we who follow Christ might disagree with the conclusions that we just need to live and let live that's a more merciful way to live. I don't disagree with his observation. We're presented with a problem. How do we make meaning of all the pain and hurt caused around us? How do we actually lean in on the mercy of God not being treated the way that we deserved? James 2 verse 13 kind of adds a bit of confusion, but let me help you understand it. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that might, at first blush, make you think, well, Tyler, that doesn't mean, that seems like mercy and judgment aren't linked. Mercy triumphs over it. But if you, see, if you notice here, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It's actually showing how intimately linked they are. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How? Psalm 85, 10 through 11 says it this way. Steadfast love and faithfulness 
meet. The faithfulness here is talking about faithfulness to God's righteous rules, his law, his commandments. And his love is this idea of his mercy, this unconditional, I'm going to keep coming for you. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace. Kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. See, what James 2 and Psalm 85 and Jonah 3 are helping us see is mercy does triumph over judgment, but not simply by setting it aside. Mercy triumphs over judgment because mercy comes through judgment. And you know the one place that we can see that as true is the cross of Jesus Christ. What other place have we been able to experience the ultimate mercy of God not being treated as we deserve? That he would, God himself would, as we've celebrated with Advent, come, incarnate, be a baby, live this life perfectly, have no sin, nothing to be charged against, and then go to the cross and die. How is that merciful? It's merciful because we don't deserve that type of love. But it also, the judgment of God is what's being dealt with in that moment. So what is God's mercy? God's mercy is not being treated how you deserved to be treated. And mercy does triumph over judgment. They're intimately linked, but how that happens is it comes through judgment. And this is what Jonah 3 is helping us see. Here's the soul level implication for you and me. Our path out, that pendulum, back and forth, starved, dead moralism versus gluttonous hedonism, the path out. We have to understand what is God's mercy. Now that we know what it is, how is this the path out? Here's the soul level implication. To really see God's mercy, to really see it, to really see the cross of Christ for what it is, to really see God and his character and his goodness and his love, to really see that he is merciful, we must really see that we either are if we're not in Christ or were if we are in Christ in danger of judgment. We cannot inoculate God's judgment. We cannot give him a vaccine to say, God, your moral law and standard doesn't mean anything. That what your word says doesn't mean that I should love my neighbor as myself. That doesn't really mean that. That I shouldn't live in an understanding way with my wife. It doesn't really mean that. That apart from the cross of Christ, we were in danger of being overthrown. But yet God, because he is who he is, he did not treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. He shows us mercy. Do you feel it? That you can't really fully get out of this pendulum without fully comprehending God's mercy first. And that doesn't lead us in guilt or shame, but I hope you can feel it. It leads us to a place of like, okay, I can worship this God because he has saved me. He has rescued me. He has been merciful to me. He's dealt with me in some amazing ways. Let's keep going. So what, what is God's mercy? Now that we kind of know what God's mercy is from Jonah 3, how do we respond to his mercy? Look back here with me in verse 5 through 8. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. 
But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So how do we respond to his mercy? Well, we see them first respond in honesty. Did you see this here? They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So no matter the station of life for these individuals in Nineveh, they equalized themselves. They looked around and recognized, based on Jonah's preaching and the movement of God in their heart, they look around and they realize we are all in danger of imminent overthrowing realities. We're all in danger of this. So they all put sackcloth on and they all recognize from great to least, we are in trouble. They're honest with themselves. They're honest with each other. Sackcloths at this time, prophets, whether uh, Hebrew prophets or other prophets, they would, they would wear sackcloth particularly as a sign of mourning for sins, a sign of mourning for sins for themselves and of the people. So all the communal, total, as they hear this message of Jonah, which is only five words in the Hebrew, which we'll get to my friend Jonah in a second, it's not that great of a sermon, but something happens in their heart and they say, oh, woe is me. Let me put the sackcloth on. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. We are in danger of judgment. What do we do? It's also important to recognize that Nineveh at this time, they were dealing with quite a bit of famine and attack on their, from different enemies, internal revolt. They were dealing with intense things. And so this message, as God was priming their hearts for it, they got to this place of, well, of course this is going to happen. Look at us. They're honest. They're not hiding anymore. Not only do they respond in honesty, but they also respond in humility. Do you see this with the king? In verse 6, the word reaches the king of Nineveh. The word meaning the word of the Lord. And he does a couple things here that is like unheard of for a king to do. He arose from his throne. He takes off his robes and covers himself with sackcloth. He actually engages in the same way, being honest and humble in this moment. And he sits in ashes because of the news that has been given. There's humility that's here. The recognition that I am not who I thought I was. You see, honesty, if we're really honest, leads to humility. Not where we think less of ourselves, but where we start thinking of ourselves way less. Not only do they respond in humility, but they also respond in hunger. Did you see this? Both the people of Nineveh and the king, they respond in this communal, total fast. As they are dealing with the judgment of God and this, this potential mercy, this yet. Hey, there's a, there's a possibility that this can't happen, that this may not happen. As they sit there and as they think about responding honestly and humbly, they do something that's actually not typical for them to do. Ninevites, if they had some uh, proclamation that was negative from the gods, they would typically respond with sacrifices, libations, supplications, prost prostration, but they typically would not fast. They would not go hungry like this to such a place that the king is saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Like they're just brought to the end of themselves, completely needy. They respond to God's judgment so intimately linked with his mercy. They respond honest, humble, and hungry. In essence, they're responding in repentance. Repentance. 
It says this as they continue. Who knows? God may turn and relent. If we turn and relent, maybe he will. This idea of turning away from what they were doing, who they are, to something else, to someone else. And so, pretend there's an alternate reality here for a second. (laughs) That this passage doesn't list that they respond this way. How could Nineveh have responded in this moment? Instead of honest, they could have responded with naive optimism. They could have said something like, no way this judgment's going to happen. Life will get better. The famine will work out. The crops will come. Eventually we'll beat back the enemies like we have before. The right ruler will come and squash these internal revolts and unite us. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. This Jonah guy, this Hebrew prophet, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Instead of honest, they could be naively optimistic. Instead of humble, they could have been arrogant in their power and cruelty. Like, people don't want to mess with the Assyrians. They're so powerful and so cruel. They would say maybe something like this. We can keep doing what we're doing because we can. Who's going to stop us? Who's going to stop us from doing what we're doing? No one is as powerful, as cruel. Like, no one, we'll just make everyone more afraid of us so that they stop messing with us. No way that this is going to happen. Instead of honest, instead of humble, instead of hungry, they could have responded with continued greed, continued hedonism, continued gluttony, continued attempting to solve all their problems by satisfying their most innate desires and cravings, just spiraling deeper and deeper and deeper into that. Do you feel it? As I was thinking about this this week, I couldn't help put myself onto a category next to them to say, okay, how do I respond to God's mercy? Most often, I respond to God's mercy. Instead of honesty, I respond with naive optimism. I can't stop right now to think about this pain. There's not enough time. Life will just get better. If I just keep going, life will get better. I just have to achieve more, produce more, make more, advance more. If I keep thinking positive, it will get better. Instead of humble, instead of responding in humility to God's mercy, I find myself arrogant in self-absorption. I can keep going this direction because I can. I call the shots. No one else does. No one else can or should call the shots in my life. Not even this preacher guy up here. He can't call the shots in my life. No one can. I can keep going this direction because when I have gone a different direction, it didn't work out. Instead of hungry, I find myself greedy for more. I can solve the pain and the hurt and the brokenness, the judgment that's about to come. I can solve that with more of myself with more sacrifice, with more service, with more of just everything I have. I could just give more of myself, which if you recognize this or feel this, it just leads to a vicious cycle where you just keep going and you just need more. But at some point we get to the bottom of it and we don't have any more to give. This is the reality of my heart. The reality of my heart is looking at Jonah 3, I don't respond the way they do. (laughs) And neither do you, friends. Our heart posture is on a pendulum of starved, dead moralism or hedonistic gluttony. We're going back and forth. We're not honest. We're naively optimistic. We're not humble. We're arrogant. We're not hungry. We're greedy for more. And what we should learn, how do we respond to the Ninevites? Or how do we respond to God's mercy? We should learn from the Ninevites 
to respond with repentance. When we really see God's mercy, when we really see how it's so intimately linked to his judgment that when we really look and recognize like, wow, like I really was in imminent danger of being overthrown in my own life. I recognize that. Then what do we do? We go from the head to the heart to the hands, just like the Ninevites did. We're honest, we're humble, and we're hungry. We're honest, we're humble, and we're hungry. And we cultivate this in our everyday life. We have an intellectual understanding, an honesty that sin is wrong, that what I'm doing in my life is wrong. Then I have an emotional understanding that God is other than me, holy, and I am not. And so I am going to recognize I need his word and I need to heed it. I need to heed his word as it regards to sin. And sorrow and hatred of sin starts to creep in. Then it moves to my hands where I start to make a decision to turn away from this and start to turn towards God's mercy, which is so perfectly given to us in Christ. So the soul level implication for us is to not live in this alternate reality of the Ninevites, which is truly ours, but instead to respond by being honest, not naively optimistic. Respond by being humble, not arrogantly unaware of the pain and brokenness in your life. And respond in hunger because God is the only one who can satisfy the need that has been uncovered as we stare at his mercy and judgment linked together. So why should we want to respond to his mercy? We see this in verse nine. It says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Who knows? God may relent. Why do we want to respond this way? They are completely and utterly exposed at this point. They really don't know what's going to happen next. Five-word sermon from this Hebrew prophet says, Yet in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So they're just throwing stuff on the wall at this point. <coughs> they don't really know what's about to happen, but they're hopeful that something will. You get this sense of guarded skepticism. Like, is this really true? Maybe. Let's just, we got nothing else. Like, we're honest, we're humble, we're now hungry. What's going to happen you get this sense of who knows? Who can know? How can we know? Yet, they're taking a step. They're taking a couple steps at a time. And then God does relent. He responds to their hungry repentance with mercy and the impending disaster does not happen. Now, a question in my mind is like, God, did you respond because of this? Or did you already decide that you weren't going to do this? To which the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. God knew in his will, he ordained two things to happen here. That his word would go out, that he would do something in their hearts to cause change, and that they would respond in this way. Thus, he would respond in mercy. And this is what he's done in our life. This is what he does in my life pretty continually. My wife, Jess, and I, we've been married nine years now. It's been a really wonderful nine years. There's been some, and I've asked her permission if I can talk about this a little bit, so <coughs> I won't be, uh, I'm not going out of bounds or anything. But it's been, it's been a great nine years, but there's been hard moments. And the hardest moment for me has been actually really wrestling with this. 
wrestling with mercy. <laughs> like, that she would continually forgive me. The most intimate relationship I have, as I cause her pain, as I cause her harm. If you're married in the room, you know that this is one of the most intimate relationships you're gonna have on this side of eternity. Why would I wanna respond to mercy and forgiveness and grace given to her? To be honest with you, I, I function in guarded skepticism most often. I think she's not going to. And you know what happens when I really live in guarded skepticism? I stop being honest, I stop being humble, and I, I'm not hungry anymore in my repentance. And what's, what God's producing in me over these nine years has been this reality of, if she continually gives you mercy, Tyler, how much more am I gonna give you mercy? How much more, even if you've done that sin again, even if you did what you weren't supposed to do again, even if you went down that path all over again, how much more will I give you mercy if the woman I've given to you in marriage gives you mercy? Guarded skepticism, if we really call it for what it is, and we start responding in honest, hum humble, and hungry repentance, it will give way to whole life trust. Because here's what happens. God shows up time and time and time again. His mercy is unending. It's not limited. It's not limited by what you have done or not done, by what I can do or what I can't do. And why should we want to respond to his mercy? Because he will show up with mercy. He has. Even in your guarded skepticism, even if it's like, who knows, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to do it again. So what happens if we don't respond to his mercy? Well, we see this in Jonah's response, chapter four, verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, <coughs> we're not going to get into his prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. But in essence, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one to read. He is, Jonah, if I could summarize it, literally looks to the face of God as, as he sees that God is not going to destroy the Ninevites and says, I don't want to live in a universe where someone as merciful and compassionate as you exists. That's essentially what he says. So what happens if we don't respond to his mercy? What happens if we function more like Jonah in this? He's honest, I'll give him that, but he's honest stubbornly so. And he stays in this place of non-repentance, of anger and displeased at God's mercy. Well, Jesus tells a story in Luke 18, 9 through 14 that helps me think about this. I pray it helps you think about this. But he talks about this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. In essence, he's saying the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who are going to temple to worship God. <coughs> he tells his disciples, <coughs> this Pharisee, this Pharisee, he's saying like, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like them. <laughs> that I'm not like this. That I haven't sinned. That I've tithed more than I should, that I come and I fast two times a week, a month, a year, instead of the one time a year in the Old Testament law that they're supposed to fast. God, thank you that I'm doing all of these grandiose religious things, unlike those non-religious people. 
And then Jesus turns his disciples' attention and he says, look at the tax collector. He's standing far off and he's beating his chest and he's saying to God, I am a sinner, have mercy on me. What happens if we don't respond to God's mercy like the Ninevites? We will respond to God's mercy like Jonah and the Pharisee. Maybe you've had these thoughts. I have. You're thankful that you are not fill in the blank. You can't believe that that person would do this. You approach God from an I perspective only. God, just give me this. Like, haven't you seen what I've done? Haven't you seen how much I've accomplished? Haven't you seen what I've been doing for you? You, even from the outside, go above and beyond for God's love, but not from God's love. You tithe more than you've ever tithed. You've, you're here more than you're ever here. You're invested, but you're exhausted because you're functioning for God's love, not from God's love. And Jesus is warning us, this is a way to respond to my mercy, but don't do it. Don't respond this way. Instead, respond like the tax collector. God, you're holy. I'm a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. God, all honor, praise, glory is due your name, not mine. Let my name and my kingdom building fall to the ground. God, you love me because you love me. Not because of anything I did or could do. In spite of me, you love me. In spite of me, you've given me mercy. You've stayed your judgment because you dealt with that judgment on the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, the soul level implication for this is Simple. If you are responding to God's mercy in these ways, you are in danger. You're in danger of having a front row seat to God's mercy that you never get to enjoy. That you never get to feel burn in your heart and chest. Friends, I am saying this because I feel this so intimately in my own heart and bones. I am in danger of this front row, beautiful vista of God's mercy and grace in my life and never getting to enjoy it. Never getting to feel the warmth of his embrace. Sure, you seem hungry. You look hungry. You sound honest. There's an edge of humility, but really, you're starved. You're starved in a dead moralism in a dead moralism. You see, we need a path out, not just from gluttonous hedonism as the Ninevites had and were dealing with and that we've dealt with in different ways in this pendulum. <clears throat> but we need a path out for starved, dead moralism. And as we think about fasting communally as a family, friends, a danger for us is to do this from this place. You know, fasting isn't meant to earn God's love or favor or repentance. It's a response. It's an intimate devotion to saying, I'm going to forego physical needs because I want to feel you so spiritually and intentionally here, Father, that every time a hunger pang shows up, I'm reminded how much I need you, how much I need your mercy, how much I needed the cross to pay for the judgment of my sin. Fasting communally <coughs> For us, this is what we're invited into over these next five weeks looking into, Feb into February. 
Fasting communally as a family can, and it will. And here's our hope and prayer. Lead us to an intimacy with God that we never thought possible. That we never thought possible. It might just be the spark and catalyst to bring hunger, to replace starvation with hunger. To replace what's dead and make it alive. To move us away from filling ourselves up with stuff that's not going to bring us satisfaction, but actually hunger and thirst for righteousness for him who can satisfy us. And how, how can we know this to be true? <clears throat> Jesus, as I've mentioned a couple times, his cross is where mercy and judgment meet. And the, the reality of it, friends, is that you and I cannot muster enough grit in our life to pay for the debt that we are owed, that we owe God. But Jesus, who never sinned, in his mercy and grace, he calls us to a hungry repentance on the cross. The very judgment that was due for us, he himself takes it on and he says to the people who are putting him on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, he honestly cries out from the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's the one who should have never been forsaken but was the only one who could be forsaken so we don't have to be. He's honestly crying out. He humbles himself so fully, happily as part of the triune God from eternity past. <coughs> he incarnates, comes as a baby, lives a life in our brokenness and mess, experiences what we experience, and then he lays on a cross naked, vulnerable, and ashamed. He's humbled all the way to the bottom. But God being rich in mercy, he doesn't end the story there. He responds on the third day as Jesus arises from the grave and he conquers this final judgment of sin and death. He hungers for the presence of God so deeply and authentically that he walks into the desert to be tempted by Satan completely empty, 40 days, 40 nights, because he knows that what he needs is his father's presence not starved, dead moralism or gluttonous hedonism. He walks into that desert so that we can answer his call of mercy. So friends, we have a front row seat to God's mercy. And it should lead us all, it can lead us all to hungry repentance and get us out of this pendulum path that we're on. Would you answer this invitation? Would you jump in the front row seat that Christ is giving to us? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not treated us the way that we deserve to be treated. That you have loved us. That you've loved me even when I can't even love myself. When no one else can love me. You have, and we know this to be true because the cross is where faithfulness and righteousness meet. It's where steadfast love is found. That all the judgment I was due, that my friends were due because of our sin, because of our brokenness, it was absorbed and satisfied right there in that moment. And so for my friends here who have not yet trusted in Christ, God, would you please show them their front row seat to your mercy? Would you lead them to a hungry repentance 
God, for those of us who have been in Christ for some time, who are stuck in starved, dead moralism, would you break our icy hearts? Holy Spirit, as we embark on a communal fast as a family in just over a few weeks, God, would you do far more than we could ever imagine? Would you press into us the grace and mercy of Jesus on the cross? Would you remind us of our first love? Would you remind us that we have a front row seat to your mercy and we can enjoy it? We can delight in it. Help us, I pray. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.